We're reading this morning from Romans chapter 2, starting at verse 17. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonour God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision has value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. So then, if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you, who even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written coat. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. This is God's word. Uh, good morning. Morning. Uh, let me add my welcome. If uh, we've never met, uh, my name's Matt Fuller. So uh, let's pray, and uh, then we'll um, look at why we all need to have circumcised hearts and whatever that means. Our great God and Father, we need you to work. We trust that uh, this morning you're amongst us, you're with us by your word and your spirit. And so, Father, we pray, take these ancient words. Would you speak them afresh to our hearts so that we trust wholeheartedly in the Lord Jesus Christ. We do pray it in his name. Amen. Now, hopefully it's no shock um, to church regulars if I say we are a reformed evangelical church. Uh, What do I mean by that? It means we take the Bible very seriously. We think that what we have uh, in our red Bibles in front of us are the very words of God. And um, he's speaking them afresh to us this morning. That's what he does. The, the, the Lord Jesus rules his people by speaking to them from the scriptures, and he does it all the time uh, in a life-changing fashion. We take the Bible very seriously. We are not here uh, perhaps sort of stumbling around. What on earth does God want from us? No, we know. We have it clearly in the scriptures. We are not like uh, some... Uh, drifting off, drifting away from a, a firm anchor we have in the scriptures, drifting off liberalism, drifting off. What does the culture say? Well, we're in the church. We must do what the world is doing. Otherwise, they'll think we're odd. We're not like that. We take the Bible very seriously. And Romans 2 and our reading today would say, it's a really dangerous place to be if you're not careful. <laughs> So 
particularly for those of us who are Christians and know our Bibles, perhaps verse 23 in particular is a real warning of chapter 2. You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? Knowing the law, let's call it the word of God, very well, but not living it out, that dishonors God. It blasphemes him. So it's no good being Bible people if we're not obedient people. It's pointless. It's no good boasting in orthodoxy if our hearts are hard and we're judgmental of others. That's no good. It's no good thinking we're a guide for others if we don't follow Jesus ourselves. And so here is a passage which, if we understand it rightly, causes us to once again say, golly, I need Jesus. (laughs) That's why it's here. I need Jesus and the righteousness that he gives because I'll never do it on my own. If you are joining us today, we're in um, most of this term, we're in Romans chapters 1 to 4 and uh, the the theme really is in chapter 1 and verses 16 and 17 just across the page. It's the sort of idea that he unpacks in these first four chapters where Paul says, chapter 1 verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, it is... The power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then the Gentile, for because in the gospel, this message about Jesus Christ, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it's written, the righteous will live by faith. Righteousness, it's a legal term. I mean, the the opposite is very obvious in chapter 5 is condemnation. You stand before the judge, you are the righteous or condemned. But Paul's stress throughout this book is that righteousness is a gift. You can never make it, create it, earn it. You have to receive it as a gift from Jesus Christ. Lise, could you? The, um, so it's about to be winter, and uh, what you don't want to do if it's really, really cold is face the winter without any clothes. You don't want to face the winter without a coat. You want the gift of a coat. That's very kind. Look, someone's given me my coat. Excellent. Um, and uh, you put it on. And when you have a coat, you can face winter. Um, That's just a reminder, if you haven't got one, check the moths haven't eaten it since last year. When you've got a coat, you can face winter. You don't want to face winter without a coat. You don't want to face the living God at the end of your life without righteousness. If you face winter without a coat, you're exposed. If you face God without righteousness, but rather you're condemned, well, then you're in real trouble. And he stresses all of us need the gift that only Jesus can give of righteousness, not guilty. We need that gift from him. And in this long section, chapter 1, verse 18 to chapter 3, verse 20, Paul is making it clear that no one is righteous. 
naturally, every single one of us lacks this righteousness, a right standing, acceptance before the Lord. And if you've been here, uh, chapter 1, verse 18 to, to the end of that chapter, 118 to 32, what do you, moral, uh, sorry, immoral man, pagan man, um, yeah, they haven't got it those who live immoral lives. But chapter 2, he spends twice the time on moral people because it's more dangerous. And uh, last time, chapter 2, verses 1 to 16, moral people. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 17 to the end, 29, our section today, very obviously Jewish people. There's nothing racist about that. He's just saying they, his, his audience is a mixture of Jewish and Gentile people. The Jews would have thought themselves the, the most moral of the lot. And he says, yes, you, Uh, I need to speak to you because you who possess the law of God, you don't keep it. You think possessing the word of God, that's all you need, but you don't keep it. And I'm afraid you're in real trouble. So in this section, 118 to 320, I have to say, if you're a Christian here this morning, this is the closest to you and me. The danger for us is we might think, I have the word of God. Actually, I've been a Christian a long time. I know the word of God. I think I could give a sermon on chapter 2, verses 19 to the end, if I'm honest. I know the word of God. And therefore, I'm fine. Paul says, no, you need to cling to Jesus and his righteousness. Two warnings, and then what are we going to do about them? Two warnings then uh, for the uh, the Jewish Jewish religious believer or the Christian religious believer. Two warnings, two warnings. You boast in the law, but you dishonor God. And then secondly, you're circumcised on your body, but not in your heart. It's the language of the text. Let me try and see, uh, explain what it says. The first warning then to the religious person, you boast in the law, but you dishonor God. Now, Verse 17, now, you, if you call yourself a Jew, and how does he define them? Four things. You rely on the law. You boast in God. Verse 18, you know his will. And lastly, you approve of what is superior because you're instructed in the law. Four good things, probably. You, 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 you've got the law. You boast in the Lord. You know his will. You approve. Of, that's good. Four good things you've got. And then verse 19, four things you do. You're convinced that you are a, uh, one, a guide for the blind. Two, a light for those who are in the dark. Three, an instructor of the foolish. Four, a teacher of little children. Because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You have the scriptures and you use them to teach others. That's good. I mean, he's basically saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, God has given to, to the, this, originally here, this, this, this Jewish audience, you, you might say anyone today who's, who's got the Bible, he's given you, I'm a, I, couldn't, I forgot to bring my torch. Let's just, you know, we, we know these could be torches um, because, um, you know, we, we do this with them. Um, and uh, you've got a torch and it's night and someone is stumbling around and you say, oh, look, let me, let me show you the pathway. Let me use my torch to show you the pathway so you don't fall over. You don't stumble off the path. That's good. That's a kind thing to do. You have the light. You shine the light so others can see. You have the law. You teach others what God wants. That's good. The problem, verse 21, you teach others, but you don't teach yourself. 
That's the problem. You, you, you lie to other people's path and say, look, you know, you're, you're going wrong. Let me show you where you should walk. But you yourselves are stumbling around and not following God. So it sort of functions, verse 21 is the headline. You teach others, you don't teach yourselves. Then he gives three examples. You preach against stealing, but you steal. Uh, 22, you, you who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, thirdly, do you rob temples? Now, we may think to ourselves, well, that's not my issue, but if you push them a little bit further, he could just simply be saying, um, yeah, uh, you, you not steal literally, but you steal other people's credit, you steal other people's ideas, you don't commit adultery literally, but you lust after people in your heart, you have idols in your heart, but yeah, those things. The principle is pretty clear, though, what he's saying. You're very good at pointing out the flaws in other people, but you yourself, you, you know what the Bible teaches, but you don't do it. So the danger for people who have the word of God, know it, seek to teach it to others, is we say, we don't break God's word ourselves. And so we start to think somewhere in our heads, and actually we don't really need Jesus because I'm quite a good person. I mean, still sing the songs, but actually functionally, we live, basically I'm a good person. Now, where does this go wrong? Two ways. I mean, you can get the rank hypocrisy of individuals, and I'm sure Paul has a bit of this in mind in verses 21 and 22. This rank hypocrisy um, for people, uh, you know, those who maybe campaign for a biblical sexual ethic, and yet they're having an affair, they're addicted to porn, whatever it may be. You, you get those sort of the, the, the rank hypocrisy, and, and that'll be a timeless problem, I'm afraid. Uh, it'll keep cropping up in the church. I don't know how it happens. Someone just numbs their heart over time and um, thinks, I can say one thing publicly and, and teach. You, know, you must keep a biblical sexual ethic, but meanwhile, they're immoral in their private lives. It happens. I don't think it's that common. Far more common, secondly, I think it's just this general dishonoring of God in a church culture. Because it is pretty devastating, isn't it? Verse 24, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, your hypocrisy. It's pretty devastating. Now, I think more commonly, when you, uh, 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 perhaps just in a church culture, God can be dishonored. Let me give an example. Some would have heard this before. When we first set up this church 20-odd years ago, um, I met with uh, the head of... UCCF, how many C's are there? UCCF in London, the sort of the, the Christian student movement that works uh, students, uh, university students in London. I met with the, uh, the head of the London um, branch and said, look, you know, we're starting this church here in Mayfair and we'd hope to do some work with students who, in universities that are relatively nearby and, uh, you know, just to let you know and let me, what's the lie of the land and any advice and... Uh, we chatted for a bit, and he said, oh, what sort of church do you think you are? And we're explaining, well, we take the word of God seriously. He sort of listened, and, you know, we had a good conversation. 
And um, he said, the one thing I would have just observed, uh, church X down the road, church X, I reckon out of all the students in London, the students that go to church X, they know their Bibles better than any others. They've got really great Bible knowledge. The problem is, they're so arrogant, no one ever listens to them. So they don't do anyone else any good. He said, they can be just quite unpleasant. Um, and that has haunted me. I've got to be honest with you. <laughs> that has haunted me ever since. How, do you, how, does, how does that happen? You become a place where you take the word of God very, 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 very seriously and also become obnoxious in how you communicate it. How does that happen? Because there's a disconnect there. You've not actually taken the Bible very seriously. If you're so arrogant, no one ever listens to you. You know, Paul says, verse 21, look, you, you who preach against stealing, do you steal? Perhaps he could also say, you who teach, to become a Christian, you have to humble yourself. Where's your humility before anyone else? You who teach that love is kind, where, where is your kindness towards others? You know, Paul is saying to his religious audience here, who cares who your dad is, who your grandfather was? Who, who cares that you've had the law of God for centuries, millennia? Or who cares if you've been to the right churches all your life and the right camps and you read the right books and you listen to the right podcasts. Who cares if you don't become like Jesus? And so I pray for myself, I pray for us as a church, that, that ours would be a humble orthodoxy that we would confess our sins before we condemn them in others. Because to boast in the law but dishonor God, blaspheme him, that'd be a, that'd be a horrible thing. But it's possible, says Paul. There's the first mistake then this, his uh, religious audience makes. Uh, you boast in the law but you dishonor God. Secondly, uh, you're circumcised on your body, but not in your heart, verses 25 to 29. You're circumcised on your body, but not in your heart. Verse 25, circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you've become as though you'd not been circumcised. Let's just hit pause. <laughs> um, a little Old Testament background. Circumcision. Genesis chapter 17, uh, God says to Abraham, I'm going to love you forever. I'm going to love your family and bless your descendants forever. That's my commitment to you. Great. What I require of you is that you love me and obey me. And as a sign, not perfectly, no one does that, but just that's your orientation of life. And as a sign of your obedience, I'd like every male to get circumcised on the, uh, the eighth day of their life presumably it's not explicit but presumably there's something there about 
the, the descendants, where they come from. It's a sign, a mark where your descendants come from. It's a blessing to the descendants. Presumably that's uh, what's going on. Um, it's a sign. But it's only a sign. The reality, what God wants, is a heart that loves him. And that's seen in obedience. And the sign without the reality is of no good. Let me put it in, um, uh, in these terms. Uh, so here's a flag. It's a wonderful flag. And um, uh, run with me on this. Uh, here's a flag that flies above our house. So you know our house in London because it has a big flag uh, above it. And uh, I'm a supporter of Chelsea Football Club. I inherited that support from my father, who supported Chelsea, and my grandfather, who supported Chelsea. I come from a very distinguished line of supporters of a distinguished, not, not, not a distinguished line, actually. I come from a long line of supporters of a distinguished club. That's more like it. Um, that, is, that is true. Now, if I wave, I didn't bring it in this morning, but if I wave my flag around, but I am absolutely clueless about the club, uh, no idea who plays for them, completely indifferent to their results, struggle to spell the word. Um, if, if all, well, I may have the sign, but there's no reality to my fandom. Um, is that a word? Yes. Um, I was about to say fanhood, but I knew that wasn't right. Uh, there's no reality to my fanship. Fandom. Fandom's the word, isn't it? Fandom, thank you. Uh, there's no reality to my being a fan. Um, the sign without the reality is neither here nor there. That is really all Paul is saying in verse 25. Circumcision, this sign, it's no value if you observe, sorry, it has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you become, though you've not been circumcised. What's the point? By contrast, verse 26, so then if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they're circumcised? Or there could be some people who don't wave a Chelsea flag, but are really committed. They go every week to the ground. They know all the players, can name you every single player back to 1955 and the championship winning side. You can have real commitment without a flag. And he's saying, you can love the Lord from the heart and obey him, verse 26, without being circumcised. That's possible. Some of the Gentiles can do that. So it's a bit of a killer blow, really, for the religious Jew. Paul is saying, look, you may have had the law of God for millennia, but you don't love him. And you don't obey him. So the fact that you've got this sign on your body is of absolutely no use to you whatsoever because there's no reality to it. You dismiss these Gentiles, but I tell you what, some of them, they do love the Lord. They do. Verse 27, the one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law, they'll condemn you. Even though you, you've got the written code and you've got the circumcision. But they're just empty signs because there's no obedience. You're a lawbreaker. How can that be? He explains in verses 28 and 29. A person is not a Jew who is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. 
And circumcision is a circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. Now let's try and slowly just try and unpack that and go back to the Old Testament again to pick up the background. So Deuteronomy 10, we got some, put that up there. Here's what the Lord required of his people Israel. Uh, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees I'm giving you today for your own good. To the... uh, Okay, to the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your ancestors, loved them. He chose you, your descendants, above all the nations as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. So it's, it's more than we need to read. But do you see the command, love the Lord, obey him, serve him, all synonyms, that is the same as having a circumcised heart. All that meant in the Old Testament to have a circumcised heart is you're loyal to the Lord. You love him and you seek to obey him. Not perfectly. No one ever does that. But that's what the Lord required. The problem was they didn't. So it's a bit like this. Still fine. The, um, a bit like this. So here's, here's the heart. Oops, you can't really read it. But here's the heart of the law. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind, your soul and your might. That's the heart of God's law in the Old Testament. It's the heart of Deuteronomy. But it's just there in the Old Testament. And here is my Israelite uh, and his heart. Um, but the law is not on his heart. It's just an external thing. And so they can read the word, but it just sort of bounces off the Israelites in the Old Testament. It doesn't affect them. You can have this, but unless it gets into your heart, it does you no good. And so what was required was that God had to act. So you get Deuteronomy chapter 30, a promise now, a promise in Deuteronomy 30, God says, this is, here's what will happen. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart or your soul and live. Or similarly, for Jeremiah 31, the Lord says, I'll put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I'll be their God. They'll be my people. So what's required is for God to act, to God to break in and say, no, I need to change your heart. I need to... You may not be able to see it. But, but I need to write the law upon your heart that you shall love the Lord your God with your heart, with your soul, and with your might. That needs to be on your heart. And he does that throughout history. And he does that to people today. But having the external law, it does you no good. It's got to be written on your heart, says the Lord. Now, okay, 
take a step back. That's what's going on. That's what he's describing in verses 28 and 29. So what is he saying to his Jewish audience, this religious audience? You've got the law, but you don't keep it. You've got this external sign of circumcision, but it's a vacuous sign. Because the believer, the believer is one who, well, verse 25, observes the law. Verse 26, keeps the law. Verse 27, obeys the law. Not perfectly, but it's just a sign that you're a real believer. It's just a sign that you trust God, that you love him, that you want to obey the circumcised, the circumcised heart belongs to a believer who says, I can't do it. I can't make myself righteous. I can't get this law into my heart. I can't do it. I need a gift. I need Jesus to give me his righteousness, like a coat to cover my nakedness. I need that gift. And if I've received that gift... God will then change me, and slowly his law is written on my heart. The Christian, the Christian is one, I mean, you begin the Christian life with those three simple words at the bottom of the page. Sorry, thank you, please. That's how you become a Christian. Lord God, I'm sorry that I suppressed the truth about you and just wanted to live life my own way. I'm, I'm sorry for living that way. I am thankful to you that even though I deserve condemnation, Jesus has given me his righteousness. He's given me the gift. Now, that being the case, please help me live a life dependent upon you, your spirit at work in me. Never perfectly, but seeking to follow you. So those are the two warnings to the religious Jew in Paul's day, you boast in the law but dishonor God. You're circumcised on your body but not in your heart. For those of us who are Christians, I guess the danger is, or the warning is, don't say, yeah, 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 yeah. I got the Bible. I know the Bible. I've been a Christian years. I'm fine. Don't say that. Don't say that. Do say I have the word of God. And when I read it, one of the things it does is it convicts me of how far short I fall of the Lord. And that I'll never be righteous. I need that given to me. I need the right standing before the Lord, given as a coat to cover my nakedness. Do say that. Don't ever say, yeah, I, I know all this. I'm going all right. Or to push it again, to, as the Christian, the Christian is one who says, in an ongoing sense, sorry and thank you and please. Let me spend a bit more time on the first, sorry. When we say sorry, which in the Christian life is repentance, you're saying, I trust Jesus and not me. That's what repentance is. Repentance prevents presumption. It prevents the presumption that Paul is talking about here. Honest, specific repentance 
it prevents hypocrisy. It prevents arrogance. It prevents you saying, yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine as a Christian. God, you know, I'm, yeah, I'm all right. It makes you cling to Jesus. So if, if I can put it in these terms, a church, this church, it has to be, it has to be a place of real honesty. You may suffer imposter syndrome at work. You may. You may pretend that you're fine in the world. You may. But you can't at church. Because the Christian is someone who comes to church and says, I get stuff wrong. I need to confess my sin. I need Jesus. The church has to be a place of honesty. Let me put it negatively. If there is no one in your life that you confess your sins to, if there's no one in your life that you say, look, I'm really struggling with this and I need to repent, and I'm telling you and I want you to hold me to account, if there's no person that you confess your sins to, then you may, you may be in danger of chapter 2 and verse 23. You, break the, you, you boast in the law, but you're not keeping it. You may. Well, let me put it positively. If on a regular basis, there are, it can't be many, one, a few, on a regular basis, there are some you confess your sins to. You say, look, here, here are the worst things I've done this month. Here is the thing above all others I don't want to tell anyone else I've done. You confess that to one, a few others. You're not going to do this. You're not going to go wrong. You're not going to boast about how much you know, about how good you are as a Christian. Do you see? Repentance prevents the sort of presumption that Paul is talking about here. And confessing on your own to the Lord, that's good. We must do it. But it doesn't often change you. When you confess out loud to another human, a friend, it's, it's harder. It's emotionally more costly. It's more humiliating. And there it changes you. There's a power for transformation in that. So, to avoid the flaw, the mistake of these religious people, I think the most important thing is you just, what can I say as a church, we just stop pretending that we're not battling sin. Because we are. And we're getting it wrong. So let's be honest. We've got to be a place where we're honest. Sorry. The other two more briefly. Thank you. We keep on saying thank you. Thank you for the gift of righteousness from Jesus. Every Thursday night, I have a small group. Uh, we do prepared to serve. We work through various uh, Christian doctrines and how they apply uh, to the Christian life. Uh, last week, uh, it was just a session on the Word of God. And I would ask, or I would ask, I did ask, as I would always do in that session. Uh, okay, let's just be honest. Where, where are the, what are the bits of the Bible you really struggle to believe? What are the issues where just right now, it's really hard to accept what God says? First answer. 
I really struggle to believe I'm bad, that I need Jesus to save me. Yeah. Well, okay, if you feel that way, it's quite hard to be very grateful to Jesus. So confess your sin. Confess your sin. Confess your sin to someone else. And then you feel your need of Jesus' righteousness. You're conscious of it. You'll pray. You'll sing. We keep on saying sorry. We keep on saying, therefore, thank you. And then lastly, please, please be at work in me. I can't bear the thought of dishonoring your name. I'm desperate to avoid hypocrisy. Please be at work. So you see, that's the Christian life. We say sorry, openly, honestly. It makes us therefore say thank you that righteousness is a gift. Please, please be at work in me. Do you see the danger in Romans 2? I have the Bible. I know the Bible. I'm a good believer. Paul says, but do you, but do you love the Lord? Do you say, I need his righteousness? If you don't do that, you've, you don't know your Bible at all. So we keep on saying, we never move on from sorry. Thank you. Please be at work. Let me lead us in prayer together. A great God and Father, would, would we hear the warning, those of us who are Christians, in a passage such as this, that we can presume upon our Christian life, we can presume on your acceptance of us because we're good. I mean, we've been Christians a long time, some of us. We, 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 we're pretty moral. We're pretty nice. Would we not presume upon that? Father, would we be those who are honest in the Christian life? quick to repent, therefore very grateful for the gift of righteousness that comes in Christ, dependent upon you to live in any sense a life which brings your praise. Father, deliver us from this presumption, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.